0: Eritas Dayton. We're very glad that you're here. If you want to open your Bibles with me, we're going to be looking at First Corinthians 15. 1 Corinthians 15. Uh, specifically verses 35 to 49. It's a, that's a text that we're going to be looking at over the next two Sundays, this one and then next Sunday. Uh, and we're going to be focusing uh, particularly on verses 35 to 44 uh, this morning. So if you want to turn to 1 Corinthians 15, that's page 560 on the uh, white or blue paperback Bibles at the edge of each bench. You can grab one of those, turn to page 560. 1 Corinthians 15, 15 is the chapter number, that's the bigger number on the page, and then uh, verses 35 to 49, those are the smaller numbers in between the sentences, Uh, so that should uh, get you where you need to go. Uh, um, You received this morning when you walked in a bulletin, and inside of that bulletin there's a connect card. Uh, we'd love for you to just take a moment, fill that out. Uh, let us know how we can be praying for you. Let us know how we can get in contact with you. And and uh, and let us know how we can uh, get connected with you in order to, to uh, get you involved with what God is doing here in our church family. We'd love to be able to pray for you and, and meet with you and, and speak with you. Uh, so please take a moment to fill that out. All right, let's dig into 1 Corinthians 15. If you want to stand with me for the reading of God's holy and precious word. This is what the Spirit says to you, church. Listen with reverence and with joy. But someone will ask, how are the dead raised? With what kind of body do they come? You foolish person. What you sow does not come to life unless it dies. And what you sow is not the body that is to be, but a bare kernel, perhaps, of wheat or of some other grain. But God gives it a body as he has chosen, and to each kind of seed its own body. For not all flesh is the same. There's one kind for humans, another for animals, another for birds, another for fish. There are heavenly bodies and earthly bodies. But the glory of the heavenly is of one kind and the glory of the earthly is of another. There's one glory of the sun and another glory of the moon and another glory of the stars. For star differs from star in glory. So it is with the resurrection of the dead. What is sown is perishable. What is raised is imperishable. It is sown in dishonor. It is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness. It is raised in power. It is sown a natural body. It is raised a spiritual body. If there is a natural body, there is also a spiritual body. Thus it is written, the first man, Adam, became a living being. The last, Adam, became a life-giving spirit. But it is not the spiritual that is first, but the natural and then the spiritual. The first man was from the earth, a man of dust. The second man is from heaven. As was the man of dust, so also are those who are of the dust. And as is the man of heaven, so also are those who are of heaven. Just as we have borne the image of the man of dust, we shall also bear the image of the man of heaven. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray together. Father, we give you thanks for your, your sovereign, powerful grace. Your grace that forgives us. Your grace that redeems us. Your grace that sanctifies us. And your grace that will one day when Christ returns raise us from the dead and lead us into the victory of everlasting life, resurrection life in Christ Jesus forever and ever. We look forward to that day. And so as we look at this particular uh, belief, this particular truth uh, in your word, would you stir up hope and joyful expectation in our hearts? Would you let the words of my mouth and the meditation of all of our hearts be acceptable in your sight? O oh Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Through Christ our Lord, we pray. Amen. You can have a seat. Well, Christian, uh, what we've been considering in First Corinthians 15 for the last several weeks is that um, you are not fully saved yet. Um, Your salvation is not yet complete. Uh, And what I mean by that, of course, is not that your salvation isn't fully secure. What I mean by that is, is not that your salvation hasn't been fully won, but until we experience what we've been reading about in 1 Corinthians 15, we aren't fully saved. Until we experience the resurrection of our bodies, the glorification of our bodies, and we're standing on this earth in its glorified state, we will not be fully saved. Full salvation includes the entirety of our person, including our bodies. And that's what the resurrection of the body is all about. I should say that it is as good as done. Paul speaks of it in, in Romans eight thirty one 31, that our, our resurrection, the glorification of our bodies is as good as done. When Christ died on the cross and said, it is finished with his last breath, he truly secured and purchased our full salvation. When he rose from the grave three days later, he was raised as the first fruits of our full and complete salvation. When Christ sent the Spirit into our hearts, the Spirit came, as Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5 5, as the guarantee, the guarantee of our resurrection, of our complete and full salvation. But until the resurrection of our bodies takes place, there's still something incomplete. Our salvation is already and it's not yet. It's as good as done, but there's still more to come, and that more to come is the resurrection of our bodies and the life everlasting. Now, unfortunately, Many Christians today are largely unfamiliar with this, this most precious truth, this most precious and sacred truth in the Christian faith. There's, 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 uh, this, such, uh, this is such an, an essential part of our faith as Christians, though, that, that one could hardly call themselves a Christian if this is not what they set their ultimate hope and expectation on. That's why Paul writes this chapter to the church in Corinth. That's why he writes uh, about this particular subject all throughout his, his other letters. That's why uh, the ancient Christian creeds lay out the basics of our faith, and they include this doctrine. In the Apostles' Creed, we say, uh, we believe in the resurrection of the body. In the Nicene Creed, we say, we look forward to the resurrection of the dead and, and the life and the world to come. This is, the most, this is a most important belief of the Christian faith. One that we would do well to focus on a a great deal more than we often do. One that should fill our vision and our imaginations. Should stir up hope and joy and peace in this life within us. And yet this belief also creates some big questions for us, doesn't it? Uh, What are our bodies going to be like when we are raised? Are, are they uh, going to be new bodies? Or are they going to be the same bodies we have now? Are they going to be completely new? What's the, what's the world going to be like? When is, it, when is this all going to take place? Questions like those and maybe others. And at this point in Paul's letter, he kind of takes a turn to start engaging some of those really important questions. Uh, particularly this morning, we're looking at 1 Corinthians 15, uh, uh, verses 35 to 49. We're, we're going to look, uh, particularly go up to verse 44. And then next week, we'll, we'll tackle verses 45 to 49. But this morning, we see Paul engaging this question. What are our bodies going to be like when Christ returns and raises us from the dead? Are they going to be the same bodies as we have now? Are they going to be different? What, what's, what, 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 what are our bodies going to be like? And what we see from Paul here is that there is continuity and there's discontinuity with the way that our bodies are now and as they will be when he returns. In one sense, our resurrected bodies are going to be these very same bodies that that they are now. But in another sense, they're going to be transformed, so transformed, so glorified, so different, that in another sense, they won't be the same. And even in the way that Paul answers these questions, there remains uh, some mystery. It, it seems perhaps that our imaginations just cannot fathom the glories that Christ has uh, has uh, uh, on hold for us at the resurrection of the dead. There's, there's just some sense in which our imaginations can't fully comprehend what is to come. And so the big idea that we're considering that Paul is communicating is this this morning— When we are raised from the dead, our bodies will be imperishable and unimaginably glorious. When we are raised from the dead, our bodies will be imperishable and unimaginably glorious. And we'll look at that as we consider resurrection questions, resurrection pictures, and resurrection promises. Resurrection questions, resurrection pictures, and resurrection promises. First, resurrection questions. Uh, Paul begins this portion of scripture in verse 35 by anticipating some, uh, some potential questions that some of the Corinthians might have. He writes, But some will, someone will ask, how are the dead raised, and with what kind of body do they come? Now, uh, as we've made clear, as we've been walking through 1 Corinthians 15, the Corinthians were not denying Christ's bodily resurrection. Uh, the issue that Paul is addressing here, which is very serious, uh, is is the issue that uh, some of the Corinthians were denying our bodily resurrection that we will receive when Christ returns to the earth. Uh, so these questions aren't questions concerning the possibility of a bodily resurrection. The Corinthians, the Corinthians didn't have a problem with believing in the supernatural. They believed in Christ's resurrection. Uh, as you would know, if you've read First Corinthians, the Corinthians were kind of obsessed with the supernatural. Um, they, 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 they weren't skeptical about the possibility of a supernatural event like the resurrection. Rather, in the questions that Paul is bringing up here, he's anticipating that the Corinthians would have concerns about what, resurre- what our resurrection bodies would be like. Uh, remember, the Corinthian Christians were brought up in and steeped in this Greco-Roman culture and world, uh, a, a culture that by and large had a negative view of the human body uh, and of the material world. The majority of people thought that the material world was was something to escape from. Uh, the majority of people thought that the body was the source of, of human sinfulness. Therefore, they saw death as a, as a way of escape. They believed that death was the soul's escape from the prison house of the body. Uh, They didn't just believe that that physical matter in the body was unimportant, which would be bad enough. They had a sort of disdain for the human body. They thought it was bad. And the Corinthians knew that they grew up in this kind of culture. They grew up hearing this kind of theology, being entrenched in this kind of worldview. Uh, they heard this kind of thing from their parents and from their teachers and from their religious leaders growing up. And so it's not, it's not hard to imagine that they had somewhat of a, a hard understanding, uh, a hard time understanding the, the Jewish and Christian idea of the resurrection of the body after their conversion. Therefore, a potential question that they might have when Paul starts telling them that, uh, no, the physical realm is good. Uh, God's creation, both physical and spiritual, is good. When he started telling them that God's physical creation would last into eternity and that we will live in resurrection bodies for eternity, a natural question that may arise with the Corinthians is, what kind of bodies are they going to be? You you say our bodies are going to be raised from the dead, just like Christ's body was raised from the dead. Okay, Paul. But, But what are they going to be like? And that's a fairly natural question to ask, isn't it? I'm, I'm betting that you've been wondering that yourself as, as we've been walking through 1 Corinthians 15. Uh, you, I've been up here telling you, like Paul says here, that Christians, we Christians are going to be raised from the dead. Our bodies and, and, and spirits are going to be reunited and, and we will live forever in glorified bodies on a glorified earth for all of eternity. And maybe you've been wondering, okay, what is that going to be like? And, and this may possibly be something you're asking because you're just, you're just not so sure that you like your body. Maybe you're even a little embarrassed about it. Maybe, maybe you're trying all the food, fitness, and fashion stuff, and you continue to struggle with body image issues. Or maybe, frankly, um, you're getting older. You're getting older, and, and your body just doesn't work the way that it used to. You used to be able to run and jump and play and help your friends move and wake up the next morning and do it all over again, be just fine. But lately, not so much. You play a game of, of pickup basketball and, and you're out of commission for like a week. <laughs> Wrinkles and, and blemishes and, and hair is, is growing in all sorts of crazy places. Hair is growing out of places you didn't even think possible. You know, all of a sudden your barber is putting his trimmers in your ears. It's just the craziest thing. This happens though, we, we get older and uh, we accumulate injuries and we, we birth children and our bodies, they sag and they break down and they smell. Maybe you're, you're dealing with some sort of illness or pain in your body, some sort of injury in your body. For some time now, you're waking up every morning just yearning for some sort of freedom or relief from this. Whether it's one of those sorts of struggles or another one, you're you're just thinking uh, being raised from the dead, spending eternity as an embodied creature doesn't sound all that appealing. The suffering, the the embarrassment, the aging that we face in our bodies can, can sometimes make it hard to understand how the resurrection of our bodies can be a good thing, be good news. Or maybe it's not that. Maybe you're actually, you're really enjoying life in the here and now. And you're, you're very comfortable. Maybe you don't suffer much at all. And, and if you're honest, you'd be happy if life went on like this uh, with some minor changes forever and ever. And whether or not the, the resurrection of our bodies seems odd because of the suffering, the embarrassment, the aging you've, you've experienced in this life, or it seems odd because, because you think that life is perfectly fine as it is now, the resurrection of our bodies is actually much better news than you've ever imagined. As Paul says in 1 Corinthians 2.9, No eye has seen, no ear has heard, the heart of man has never even imagined what God has prepared for those who love him and the resurrection of our bodies. You see, because the resurrection of our bodies and his establishing the new heavens, the new earth, isn't God completely doing away with the earth and world as we know it. Instead, it's him making everything completely renewed, completely restored, completely resurrected forever. The biblical language for for what God will do with our bodies and what he will do with this earth when he returns is he will glorify it. He will glorify it with his presence. Heaven will come down and become one with this earth. We read about that earlier. And the earth will be transformed into what it should have always been should Adam have been obedient to his covenant with God. And so understand there's continuity and discontinuity with our bodies as they are now and our bodies as they will be when Christ returns. If you struggle with the idea of heaven, you know, uh, according to the idea of, like, Looney Tunes, you know, this sort of, like, you, you spend this disembodied existence, uh, it, it, you spend life in this sort of disembodied existence for all of eternity, floating around on clouds and playing harps with little halos on your head. I, 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 used, to, I used to hate that idea growing up. That's what what my my vision of heaven was growing up. I hated that idea. I enjoyed eating food and playing football and rolling around in the grass. I, I, I enjoyed an embodied existence, and I still do. I enjoy working, and I enjoy hugging my kids, and I enjoy eating peaches and drinking coffee. I love an embodied existence. And listen, the resurrection means that there's absolutely nothing wrong with that. There's, there's absolutely nothing wrong. We will continue to live that type of embodied existence forever. And that's not just nothing wrong. with it. It's actually a good thing. It's, it's a, a good and true part of our human nature. God created us to be embodied creatures that live an embodied existence. It's okay. And it's not just okay. It's a good and righteous and holy thing to value that and to desire it but we also recognize that our embodied existence as it is now is just not right. It's not as it should be. Our bodies fall apart and we feel ashamed of them and we ache and feel pain and we decay and eventually we die. And so I'm telling you that that many, probably most of the things that are good and true and beautiful are going to be carried into our future existence and our bodily resurrection We will experience all things that are good and true and beautiful in eternity. I'm I'm telling you that that all that's not good, all that's not true, all that's not beautiful, all the sin and pain and tears are going to be done away with forever. All the former things are going to pass away. I'm telling you, there's, there's continuity and discontinuity with our bodies as they are now and as they will be at the resurrection. And that's not just me. That's what Paul is saying here. He goes on to give us some resurrection pictures that show us that there's continuity and discontinuity when it comes to the nature of our resurrection bodies. When the question comes up, what are our resurrected bodies going to be like? Paul responds by saying, well, look around you. It's, it's written into the patterns and beauty of the universe. I love what Martin Luther said once. He said, God not only wrote the resurrection on the pages of Holy Scripture, but on every leaf of spring. We're seeing it now as as we do every year in Ohio, the, you know, Spring kind of struggles to arrive in Dayton, Ohio. Uh, every year, in fall and winter, the leaves fall from the trees. The trees basically die every single year. You look at the barrenness and the desolateness of the trees during the winter here. And, and if you didn't know spring was coming, you would think that the trees were hopeless, that they were lost, that, that, that no life could come from them. But every spring, leaves begin to, to populate the trees again with a, a beautiful burst of green. It's a picture of resurrection. And Paul is offering similar pictures here. He talks about the way that sowed seeds be, sowed seeds become trees and how this is a picture of resurrection. He writes, what you sow does not come to life unless it dies. And what you sow is not the body that is to be, but a bare kernel, perhaps of wheat or of some other grain. But God gives it a body as he has chosen and to each kind of seed its own body. Now this is a process that that the Corinthians would have been familiar with. Most people in the ancient world would have been uh, because most of them would have had significant experience, a a significant amount of personal experience with farming and gardening. And some of you can say the same, and most of us city dwellers can't. Some of us can't keep anything green alive in our house. But the process is, is simple enough. You, you probably learned it in your third grade science class. Uh, students here at Ruskin are probably learning this. Uh, but what do you do with a seed? You, you sow it. You bury it in the ground. And it, and it dies and it's destroyed. It's present state as a seed is destroyed. And in so doing it, it germinates. When the seed uh, uh, gives way to death, it begins to grow into a plant or a tree or a crop, depending on the type of seed that you plant. And by the way, this is just a a little side note. This is why Jews and and Christians have always preferred the method of burial when it comes to disposing of our corpses in a safe and sanitized way. Uh, It's not that God can't raise up a corpse that has been buried and turned into ash. He he, he can, uh, that has been burned and turned into ash, rather. He can. Uh, He created us from dust in the first place. He is sovereign over every speck of dust in the universe, even that of our decomposed bodies. Uh, but it's what the people of God have done uh, ever since the times of Abel and Abraham because this symbol is important. The, the body is sowed into the ground at death just as a seed is sown into the ground. And just as seeds die and become something more glorious and more beautiful than they ever were before, our bodies will be raised to a glorious new kind of existence. I remember uh, seeing this when, when I was 15 years old my family went on vacation to Sequoia National Forest. It's about four-hour drive north of uh, L.A. In, in California. And uh, we stayed in this lodge there. And if you know anything about Sequoias, they're just huge trees. They are massive. Uh, the biggest tree in the world is there at Sequoia National Forest. His name is General Sherman. Um, it's this tree. He's 275 feet tall and over 100 feet round at the base of the tree. It's just a huge, massive tree. But consider this, um, around 3,000 years ago, General Sherman was a little seed. Just a, a little seed, a seed you could literally hold in your hand. Just a little seed, a tiny little seed. A seed you could hold it just, and, and, and to get the point that Paul is making here, General Sherman the seed, he, he was the seed that was buried in the ground and that died thousands of years ago. In one sense, General Sherman is that seed, but in another sense, he's also not that seed anymore, is he? Like, is, is General Sherman that seed? Yes, but in another sense, no. No, but in another sense, yeah, uh, General Sherman is that same seed. And so it is with our resurrection bodies. When we die, our bodies will be buried and planted in the ground. And when Christ returns, something more glorious than General Sherman will come up. Something so glorious that it's beyond our wildest imagination. That's why Paul is using pictures here to describe it because there's a sense of mystery. There's a sense in which we just can't fathom uh, the, 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 the beauty of what our bodies will be like, the glory of what our bodies will be like. As C.S. Lewis, he once, he once put it this way. He said, remember that the dullest, most in, uninteresting person you can talk to may one day be a creature which, if you saw it now, you would be strongly tempted to worship. Will our bodies be the same bodies that we have now? Yes, but in another sense, no. And to discuss the difference between what they'll be like, Paul goes on to talk about the difference between creatural bodies and and celestial bodies. He says, but God gives it a body as he has chosen and to each kind of seed its own body. For not all flesh is the same, but there's one kind for humans, another for animals, another for birds, another for fish. There are heavenly bodies and earthly bodies. But the glory of the heavenly bodies is of one kind. The glory of the earthly is of another. There's one glory of the sun and another glory of the moon and another glory of the stars. For star differs from star in glory. Now, upon initial glance, that's kind of confusing, isn't it? But all that Paul is is getting at here is that God has created different types of bodies for different purposes and different existences. Birds were made for the air. Fish were made for the sea, animals were made for their environments, whether that be a forest or desert or pasture, humans were made for another kind of existence and environment. And just like these different types of bodies were created for different kinds of existence, so our resurrection bodies will be different from our bodies as they are now. This is Paul's answering the skeptic who is wondering how these frail frames, these hairy, wrinkly, smelly, achy, aging bodies that we have now could possibly be transformed into the glorious kind of body he's saying we're going to have. He's in essence saying if God can create all of these different kinds of bodies for different purposes and different environments, then he can transform and recreate our bodies to be the glorious kind of body that we'll need to live forever on a glorified earth. And he goes on to speak uh, to how planets differ from other planets in their glory. The sun differs in glory from the moon, which differs in glory from the stars. And so the glory of our bodies as they will be at the resurrection differs from the glory of our bodies as they are now. Our bodies as they are now have a lesser glory than our bodies as they will be. The glory of heavenly bodies is of one kind. The glory of earthly bodies is of another. At the resurrection, our bodies will be transformed and glorified and made new forever. I love how uh, New Testament scholar N.T. Wright gets at this. he he makes note of how we often talk about people when they age or or when they suffer from a debilitating illness or when they've aged rather severely. We say, you know, he's just a shadow of his former self. But as Wright says, if you're a Christian, you're just a shadow of your future self. That's what Paul is saying to us as, as he gives us resurrection pictures. He's saying, your body will be glorified at the resurrection. And it will be completely transformed. It will be unimaginably glorious. And it's hard to imagine. But just remember, there's a difference between the seed and the tree. There's a difference between creatural bodies. There's a difference between celestial bodies. And at the resurrection, your body will be different. And if God's capable of making a seed into a tree and if he's capable of creating all these different types of bodies for different uh, animals and existences and environments, if he's capable of creating these glorious planets that shine in all their splendor, he can definitely take your lowly body and make something glorious and new and eternal out of it. It will be made new. It will be glorified. And that's what he's saying with these resurrection pictures. He goes on to say much the same in these resurrection promises. And here we're presented with a series of contrasts. Paul writes from verses 42 to 44, so it is with the resurrection of the dead. What is sown is perishable. What is raised is imperishable. It is sown in dishonor. It is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness. It is raised in power. It is sown a natural body. It is raised a spiritual body. He's showing the difference between the state of our bodies as they are now and the state of our bodies as they will be when they're raised. Our bodies now are perishable. They deteriorate, they decay, they die. But our bodies, when they're raised, will be imperishable, like in a perpetual state of youth, but even better. They won't age, they won't deteriorate, they won't decay, they won't suffer pain and injuries, they won't age, they won't smell, they won't die. Death won't survive your resurrection, Christians. Remember, Christ's body is the first fruits of what will take place with us when He returns. His body is the prototype for what God will do with us when Christ returns. And as Romans six nine says, Jesus, we know that Christ, being raised from the dead, will never die again. Death ha- no longer has dominion over Him. As Paul says in Philippians three twenty to twenty one, from heaven we await our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly bodies to be like His glorious body. Death is not the final word for us. Christ has dominion over death, and he has freed us from death, and he will free us from death forever when he returns. Death is not the final word for us. You will have eternal dominion over it in Christ. Death is an enemy. It causes great pain and consternation in this life, yes, but it is a defeated enemy, and it does not have the final word. Resurrection does. Next, we see Paul say that our bodies, which are sown or or buried in dishonor, they will be raised in glory. Our bodies will be glorified. By saying that our bodies are sown in dishonor, Paul is is not saying that our bodies are bad and that we should be ashamed of them. That's not what he's saying. but, But he's saying that our bodies as they are now are subject to impermanence, to suffering, to corruption. Our bodies as they are now are subject to the curse of a fallen world. And in contrast, our bodies at the resurrection will no longer be subject to the curse of a fallen world. They will be glorified. As one commentator describes what Paul is getting at here, the state of the resurrected Christian's body will be one to which glory belongs. It will be, listen, it will be a body that finds complete fulfillment in God's design and purpose. Next, we see that our bodies which are sown or or buried in weakness will be raised in power. And here he's not just getting at the reality of, of, of human frailty, although that's definitely a reality, but rather he's getting at the particularity of Christian frailty, Christian weakness, Christian foolishness. He's going back to this, to this theme that he discussed back in First Corinthians 1 about the weakness and foolishness of the Christian life. God has chosen what is weak in the world to display his strength and power. He has chosen what is foolish in the world to display his wisdom. That means the Corinthians. That means Paul. That means you. That means me. Living for Christ, living lives of sacrifice now like we talked about last week. It's just weakness and foolishness in the eyes of the world. And, 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 and maybe we don't know Uh, actually know the fullness of this as Americans. You know, people may poke fun at us and they may say that we're on the wrong side of history because of our theology and ethics. But that's about it for the most part. But, But for most Christians throughout history and for most Christians throughout the world, being a Christian means being shamed and humiliated and persecuted for the sake of Christ and his people. And Paul most definitely experienced this. The Corinthians likely did. Many Christians still experience this. And our being raised in power at the end of the age is the vindication for a life lived in such a way. We're seen as weak, foolish people now, but we will be raised in power and vindicated when Christ returns and gives us the redemption of our bodies. Last contrast, our bodies are sown or or buried as, uh, as natural bodies, but they will be raised as spiritual bodies. This means that our bodies will be animated, by the Holy Spirit. I don't be confused by this because you know m- many of us have been taught bad theology. Therefore, we automatically assume that material and spiritual are antonyms. Therefore, we, we often we, we think that when Paul says we're going to be raised as spiritual bodies, we think of some sort of immaterial kind of existence. But that's not what Paul is saying. Uh, interestingly, the root, tra- uh, the root word translated as natural here is the Greek word from which we get English words like psyche or soul. Some translators even translated this phrase here as, it is sown a soulish body, it is raised a spiritual body. Or several commentators really celebrated the way that the complete Jewish Bible translation puts it. Uh, It says, when it is sown, it is an ordinary human body. When raised, it will be controlled by the Spirit. So you see the contrast he's getting at here. He's saying right now, our bodies are controlled and animated by and subject to our souls. And our souls tend to be sinful and marked by wrong desires and urges and passions. As early church father Augustine said, he said, it was not the corruptible body that made the soul sinful. It was the sinful soul that made the body corruptible. But when our bodies are raised, they'll no longer be subject to our sinful souls. When we are raised, our bodies will be animated by and controlled by and subject to the Holy Spirit. And he will fill and transform our bodies in such a way as to complete the transformation that he began when he filled us in the first place. There will no longer be any war between sinful desires and righteous desires. There will only be desires, the desires and the fruit and the affections and the fullness of the presence of the Holy Spirit. We will be fully animated and controlled by the Holy Spirit. And that doesn't mean that we'll become less of ourselves. That means that we'll finally be our true selves. We'll finally be the people that we were meant to be, created to be, redeemed to be. We'll finally be the people, the human beings that God created us to be. Our relationship with God, our relationships with one another, our relationship with ourselves, our relationship with God's creation will no longer be hindered and marred by sin anymore. Rather, it will be a life as it was meant to be day after day after day forever. Our bodies will be imperishable. They will be glorified. They will be raised in power. They will be animated by the Holy Spirit. And the one reason that any of this takes place with us as Christians, is because of Christ. He is the means and the model of our full salvation. It's because he took on the perishable himself. And he perished. He didn't just perish. He perished on a tree in our place. Died a cursed death. He died a death of dishonor. He died a death of weakness and pain and sorrow. He took on death itself. And he was laid in the tomb as a cold dead corpse. But thanks be to God, he didn't stay there. He rose from the grave. He triumphed over the foes of sin and Satan and death. And he did so as the first fruits of our resurrection, the first fruits of our full salvation. He he paved the way. He broke down death's bolt-locked door and he kicked it wide open for all of his people to walk through with him. So that you and I, can be raised with him and share in his victory forever. I want you to realize he didn't just rise so that he could conquer death for himself. He rose so that he could conquer death with you, for you, and so that he could share with you his everlasting life and victory. He died and he rose so that we would be raised with him. And because he rose, we have certainty that all those who submit to him as king will be raised with him. Christian, what took place with Christ's bodily resurrection will take place with your body when he returns. He's the prototype with what God will do, what he's going to do for the entire universe and with your own body. And because Christ is no longer subject to decay and to pain and to shame, because he was planted in the ground as a seed that died, he gave life to many. He gave fruit to many. He died and rose so that we would never die again when he returns. Come your resurrection, you will never die. You will be raised and your suffering and death will be no more. Suffering and death and shame won't survive the resurrection of your body. That's what Paul is getting at here in 1 Corinthians 15 35 to 44, that's what we've been considering as we looked at resurrection questions, resurrection pictures, resurrection promises. What fuels our hope, our joy, our lives of sacrifice now is that when we are raised from the dead, our bodies will be imperishable and unimaginably glorious. This is what gives us hope as Christians. This is what gives us hope as we age, as we struggle with pain and shame. Things are not going to be as they are now forever. Resurrection is coming. And so we can face the various difficulties of life with a joyful expectation. That's that's what hope is. Hope is not optimism, as we often think about. When we talk about the hope of the resurrection, we're not saying we're optimistic that there's going to be a resurrection. No, we're saying we are joyfully expecting resurrection. We are joyfully expecting it because Christ was raised from the dead. Hope is a joyful expectation for what Christ Christ will do when he returns. And it completely changes the way that we face life in the here and now. It gives us joy and peace and patient endurance in the midst of hard circumstances. And not only that, but, but even when our lives are comfortable in the here and now, this great hope beckons us to not look for our best life now. This great hope, this joyful expectation beckons us to live lives of sacrifice like we looked at last Sunday. This great hope, this joyful expectation gives us reason to be faithful and disciplining and devoting ourselves to life with God and with his people and on his mission. It's what gives us reason to do things like show up to church every Sunday, to do family worship every night, to to invite our unbelieving neighbors into our homes and into our lives, to bring children that are in need into your home for a prolonged period of time. It's what causes us to be faithful in our marriages, even when it's hard. It's what causes us to work for social justice in our neighborhoods and city, even when it's hard. It's it's what should sustain us to be faithful to these callings, even when it causes great distress and difficulty to do so. Your best life is not meant to be lived in the here and now. If you're in Christ, your best life won't be lived in the here and now. Right now is a time for sacrifice, for serving, for denying ourselves, for for dying to ourselves, for picking up our crosses so that others might meet the hope we have in the resurrection of the body and the life everlasting. This hope, this joyful expectation has sustained God's people for years, for centuries. This is what caused the, the, the early church to be such a driving force and faithful presence early in her life. And the same should be true today. The same should be true for us here in Dayton, Ohio in 2018. This isn't a peripheral or abstract subject. This stuff, this doctrine, the resurrection of the body and the life everlasting is smack dab in the middle of what it means to be a faithful and fruitful Christian in the here and now. Belief in the coming transformation of our bodies brings real, tangible transformation and hope right now. May it be so with us. Let's pray together. Father, would you stir up hope within us? Would you stir up joyful expectation in us? Not mere optimism, but a life of joy and peace and patient endurance in the here and now. Because we know, because Christ was raised from the dead, we will be too when he returns. Would you help us to would you, would you spark our imaginations? Would you stir up our imaginations and the vision that we have for the life in the world to come? Would you help us to be so animated by it now? So enlivened by it now that we live lives of sacrifice for the sake of our spouses, for the sake of our children, for the sake of our neighbors, for the sake of our church, for the sake of our city, would you help us to pick up our crosses, in order to announce and embody and and demonstrate the kingdom of God in the here and now? And Lord, we need your help in that. So do you be at work within us now? This word that has been spoken, and as we uh, celebrate baptisms and the Lord's Supper. Would you stir up that hope within us with these pictures that we're going to enjoy here in a few moments, these pictures of of resurrection life and new life. We thank you, Lord, and and we trust you. And you are the source of our hope and our joyful expectation. Through Christ our Lord we pray. Amen.
1: We're going to sing before the throne and after we do that we're going to celebrate a couple of baptisms and we love getting to see that. We love getting to see it. And so it's something that we want to invite all the children in and all the family ministry servants into. And so we ask at this time that if you dropped off your children in the family ministry classrooms that you would go and get them. We want everyone to be able to be in here together. So if you would stand with us as we sing and if you have children back in the classrooms, please go get them now. The throne of God above, I have a strong and perfectly great high priest whose name is love. Satisfied Be seated.
0: Amen. Well, uh, this morning we have the privilege of celebrating the baptisms of Jennifer Oswald and Joe Esperanza. Uh, They've responded to the call of the gospel by repenting of sin and by faith trusting in the death and resurrection of Jesus for salvation. And uh, at Veritas, we believe that baptism was ordained by Jesus Christ. Uh, and therefore, every follower of Jesus is obligated to be baptized. Uh, as you're about to see, baptism is a follower of Jesus being immersed in water in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. It's a, it's a picture of Christ's death. And resurrection. It's a picture of a Christian's identification with Christ's death and resurrection. It's a, it's a picture of what will happen with this believer when Christ returns. It's a picture of our forgiveness and the washing away of sins that took place when a person trusts in Jesus. And it's also a Christian's way of announcing to the world uh, publicly that they are a follower of Christ. And that's what's taking place here this morning as we baptize Jennifer and Joe. And so let's go to the Lord in prayer together to ask his blessing on this sacred rite that Jesus commanded. Heavenly Father, we thank you for these who have come this morning to make public their belief in the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. We praise you for your great mercy, having caused them to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. We rejoice in the wonderful drama of baptism that points to their spiritual burial with Christ, and their resurrection to walk in newness of life, and their physical resurrection that will take place when Christ returns. May we once again exalt in the wonderful reality that through the power of the gospel we do not come into judgment but have passed from death into life. We pray these things in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Now, if those of you who are being baptized want to come forward, and if if you so wish, you can kind of move around so you can see better. You can even come up here if you want. Uh, You don't have to stay in your seats. Feel free to come up so you can get a a better view of what's uh, going to take place. We're going to hear from Joe and from Jennifer uh, their stories, and they're going to profess the Apostles' Creed, and we're going to baptize them. So come on up.
2: Alright, can everyone hear me? Alright, my name is Joe, and I am a great sinner, but Jesus is a far greater Savior. Without Jesus, my story was one of sin, pride, and wrathfulness. I thought that I knew what was best for myself and did not trust God with my life. This life led to a life of greed, sexual immorality, and unforgiveness to others who hurt me in my life. I deserve God's anger and judgment. But I am no longer my own. Christ died to forgive all my sin and rose again. And now I belong to him, and my story is now wrapped up in God's story. And now I believe in God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and Jesus Christ, his only son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended to the dead. The third day he rose again. He is ascended into heaven and seated at the right hand of God, the Father Almighty. For there he will come to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Christian Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen.